Hear me now? Yep. Yep. Okay, you, were good. Just you were on mute before. Yeah, there's just some tension with me and technology. There's always been this tension with me and technology. I don't get it. All right. For anyone who is listening to this crazy podcast, this is Jennifer Jess, and I'm doing a discussion this morning with um, Leela Taylor. And this is pretty exciting because I really like her work, and she's, she's taking time out, you know, to talk to me about it. Um, Leela, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm, I'm doing good. I That's think that good. there's always like a little asterisk, like after that, like <laughs> under the surface, pretty good. Okay. Um, Leela Taylor, for anyone who doesn't know, is a writer and artist whose work focuses on the gothic in black culture and the aesthetics of romanticized melancholy. Hmm. And um, she's also the creative director at the Brooklyn Public Library. So again, thanks, Leela, for hanging out with me. Um, so your work really, I don't know, it really pushes a lot of buttons. I really was excited by discovering you. And I have a million questions to ask you. Let's see, where should I begin? Um, no, really, no, really, I mean, okay, where should I begin? Um, let's begin with... Um, well, can you tell me maybe about some early experiences in your life that led you to have a fascination with the Gothic? Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's something that's always sort of been a part of who I was. I mean, I was always kind of a weird, dark kid. Um, <laughs> like, I used to play in cemeteries, and I was sort of fascinated by ghosts and, you know, the occult and... Um, uh, you know, sort of all the dark, spooky things that go bump in the night. So I think when I was about 13, I discovered uh, Anne Rice and mm. Susie and the Banshees at about mm. like the same time. Wow. And I think at that age, it kind of just sparked something in me that was like, oh, this is exactly what I feel like. Mm in book form and music form. Um, and yeah, and so I started, you know, mostly mostly with the music, mostly really getting in the goth music and the Cure and Bauhaus and, you know, and Susie. And, but, um, but aside from the music, I also was fascinated by horror, you know, horror movies and, and horror literature. And um, I think to sort of explain exploring like the the darker side of of life so I don't know if there was any kind of pivotal moment I think it's just sort of always been a part of my personality it's hmm. very interesting so basically you were a little kid who was just drawn towards stuff like that yeah yeah <laughs> you know I, I was fortunate that um you know my dad is a architect and my mom's an anthropologist so there was always a lot of um art in my world and my parents sort of would just I, I would just sort of grab any random book off my parents bookshelves and they were just like you know find whatever read what you want so I probably was exposed to more you know movies books and, and ah, you know, okay at a younger okay. age than I probably should have 
I tell people I've seen, I saw uh, a lot of Fellini movies a lot younger than I <laughs> <should> have. <laughs> that is so funny. I remember being a kid, like, in the 60s, and there were always these, like, Italian films with Sophia Loren and, and Marcello Mastriani on Channel 9, Channel 11. And they were mm-hmm. always in the background, like, you know, that, that Italian pop music. Da, 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 oh, yeah. Like dream music, and people are just driving in these convertibles around coastlines. Oh. Um, yeah, with the big Sophia Loren sunglasses. Yeah, yeah, yeah with the big <laughs> sunglasses and the scarves blowing in the wind, and everybody looks kind of stoned or something on life itself. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Um, I remember that really a lot, you know. Yeah. And, I mean, it was was cool though it was a cool element in 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 my childhood um yeah but the dark thing the dark stuff i'm not sure about that um hmm um, i think it's well. because the first movie i saw i think uh, see i was like watching satiricon which is so much more bizarre and abstract hmm. Interesting. Um, uh, but yeah i think i um yeah i mean i don't know exactly what it was about my surroundings. I mean, I grew up in Detroit, which is a kind of gothicy kind of has a gothicy kind of vibe to it. Wow. Um, but uh, uh, you know, I was a latchkey kid, so I was kind of like left to my own devices a lot. <laughs> you know, and my mind just went like oh I remember. My God. I That's remember so funny. Spending... All hell broke loose, I guess. Sort of, but it was all like mental. I was a good yeah. kid, so it was all yeah. like you know, my mind going into weird, weird places on its own. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, but, but isn't that childhood? Like, isn't childhood creepy? It is. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 um, especially like there's a, there's an age where life is starting to become sort of real and understandable, but you still have this sort of element of fantasy Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and pretend and sort of mm-hmm. the line between pretend and reality kind of blurs a bit, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, like where magic can kind of, uh, yeah, can kind of be real for you, you know? Um, one of the descriptions I read of black, of darkly, <clears throat> excuse me, darkly black history and America's Gothic soul, um, was that it's a book that widens the expectations and understandings of blackness. Hmm. So, um, well, I have a lot to, to say about widening the expectations <laughs> and understandings of blackness. I don't even know where to start. Um, I mean, frankly, I feel that the whole blackness thing and the language that we use now has, has outgrown itself. We need to... Um, yeah. Yeah, it's not working. The blackness, whiteness thing has just become limiting and confrontational. And um, I think that we need to move towards, like, some kind of evolution in how we identify ourselves. And that's happening, certainly, with gender, right? <clears throat> yeah, yeah. But with race, no, not at all. Um, it's like we're really kind of um, just getting more more deeply entrenched in our in our oppos- op- oppositional kind of identities and stuff with in terms of race it's it's a burnout like i'm kind of not yeah. you know what i mean i'm burnt out now with the whole you know white is this blackness i don't really think 
I don't know. And it was, this is the thing, it was never that. It's always been sort of external forces trying to define, trying to, you know, limit from both, you know, from, you know, from black folks and white folks and over folks, like black people do this Mm, and white people do that and and trying to categorize it. And the more you do that, the more you try to um, define definitive characteristics of anyone, it's just dehumanizing. The more you try to um, assign attributes to a human being, it makes them less and less human, you know? So, and that's one of the reasons why I kind of wrote it. One of the things that got me writing about this, because I was just like, I I was so sick of this attitude that there are some things that black people don't do, you know, or things that only white people do, you know, and I was just like, you know, as you know, for me, I was, I was one of those black kids doing all the shit that white people did. I was like, well, where does that leave me? You know? So yeah, so I, I, um, as opposed to, um, yeah, I think as opposed to widening what blackness is, I think it's much more, or what I'm much more interested in is um, kind of what you were saying, is, yeah. is trying to stop, um, trying to put a scope on it yeah. <laughs> at all, whether it's limiting, you know. Um, well, yeah, it does make sense. I mean, it's... It's necessary to do that work now. A lot of people seem to be invested in combat and, and, and warfare, especially on social media. Yeah. So um, it's good to know that, you know, little by little, we're trying to discover a new way to be human beings because the racial thing and, and none of it's working out for us. None of it. None of it. And, no. and human history is it's human history. We just have to just understand it's complex and move forward. But I'm not optimistic at this point. Um, yeah. Um, okay, so I wanted to ask you about romanticizing melancholy and the, mm-hmm. and and also the morbid, because when you talk about you know you know gothic, right? You're, you're getting into the realm of the morbid. What do you think? Because I know that you know I've seen goth kids, you know, and they and they dress you know in a certain way in black and dark colors and so on. Were you one of those kids? And do you identify with with things that we consider morbid? Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Also, the the thing with goth or gothic, because really, okay. I talk more okay. about I talk about gothic as as sort of an aesthetic and as a genre more than goth. Mm. Like yes. goth is a subcult, you know, is mm-hmm. a subculture from from music. But um, gothic or the gothic is a kind of dark romanticism. It's taking the sort of quote-unquote negative aspects of our emotions of our experience um sorrow and death and melancholy and using them as a sort of fodder for for art and expression and creativity you know so it started um sort of you know back in sort of the 1800s um, with like the cemetery poets and things and people would have like ode to the graveyard and stuff like that. So, mm. 
the gothic is always kind of there's a there's an aspect of it that's all about taking these things that are supposed to be scary to us or things that we're supposed to consider bad or bad yes. feelings like sadness and instead of running away from that or sort of denying it um seeing the the beauty the beauty in those things so it's a kind of dark romanticism you know um in that in that aspect and the more the morbidity of it i think is is sort of a way of just defining um again those things that we think are scary like death or decay hmm. or hmm. um uh you know those things that are supposed to be repellent to to us and i think the gothic kind of leans into it as opposed to Wow. Running away from it. That's very heavy. That's very, very heavy. <laughs> it's very, very heavy. No, it really is. I'm thinking about that right now. Um, I wanted to ask you, okay, so, you know, I'm in Mexico. And so, and, uh, you know, in the last, I guess, five years, I've been bouncing back and forth between Guatemala, Mexico, Guatemala, Mexico. And, you know, so you have a lot of indigenous people in these countries and, you know, ruins and stuff that reinforce that these countries have very, very old histories. And so like the Maya, for example, and, you know, some of, you know, the original inhabitants of these countries, um, they practice like human sacrifice, decapitation, hardest, you know, stuff that um, is, is, we could say, you know, you know, we could just literally just, you know, shriek and, and, and say, you know, that's horrible, right? Um, do you see any connection between that and, and, and gothic sensibilities or, you know, the gothic imagination or what? I mean, I think especially, you know, Mexico, and I, 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 I need to learn more, so I apologize if I'm butchering any of this, but there really is sort of anything. a culture. Oh, yeah, <laughs> I don't know anything either. I'm just thinking oh, that, yeah. you know, there's, we've always had, you know, we've always had ancient and primitive customs that seem morbid or savage or, yeah. or things that we would, you know, again, cover our eyes to and our ears to and say, that's bad or that's scary, that's horrible. Yeah. Um, do you draw any connections between the Gothic and maybe traditions that were Gothic but preceded the Gothic? What do you think? I mean, I think that looking from our, our own, our sort of Western perspective, our contemporary Western perspective, um, and sort of we can look at those things and see a kind of morbidity to it or see a kind of horror to it. But I think unless you are part of that culture, the meaning could be something completely different in yeah. that culture and in that time, you know. So yeah. I think as an outsider looking in, you know, we can look at it and think that's scary and horrifying. Hmm. But when you're in it... Uh, um, and again, you know, it could be something that's reverent. It could be something that's, you know, powerful. It could have all sorts of different attributes or associations um, that aren't necessary about fear or horror. Um, I mean, I think that I think one of, one of the closer things would be things like the um, like Day of the Dead or the Cult of the Dead. Yeah, there's a kind of yes. um, there's a worship. There's like an ancestor worship. Yes. There's a worship of, um, of, uh, or an appreciation of um, death as opposed to being something to fear, as something to respect, or something to celebrate, 
again, I don't know that much about it, but it's a positive um, turn or appreciation of or perspective to death as opposed to, or like I think of like the, the, um, like the jazz funerals in New Orleans, you know? Right, yes, yes, Or for yes. some people might think, you know, I mean, there's a whole process between it. There's a dirge and then there's, you know, the celebratory music. So for some people they might think, why are they playing this happy, upbeat jazz music and dancing in the streets when someone just died, you know? Isn't that, you know, disrespectful or whatever? But um, if you understand it, you're like, no, it's, it's, it's a celebration of this person's person life you know so I think I think one's perception of what these kind of practices are depends on where they're coming from and absolutely. when they're coming yeah from. absolutely um do you think that gothic do you think there's an, a built-in eroticism to it uh yeah absolutely I mean I think that there is um I mean, of course, I automatically think about like vampires because I was obsessed with vampires. So there's definitely <laughs> an eroticism with vampires. I mean, vampires is basically just a you know oh metaphor for sex. Oh my um, god! Oh my, god, my heart. <laughs> no, no, it's too funny because it is. I mean, as a kid, I knew that there was something I wasn't supposed to be watching with vampires. Yeah. Always, like those yeah. men in women's bedrooms and the women always had like huge cleavage showing and stuff but for some oh, reason yeah. they'd sink their fangs into their necks instead of their breasts it seemed to me that yeah. if you're going to prop their breasts up to that extent then why go for the neck <laughs> but I don't know I mean and there's that exchange it's an exchange of body fluid you know oh, wow but um uh I think one of the and this probably goes back to the romanticizing aspect of it um you know I think there's always been something kind of um i guess sensual or something yes. about the vulnerability of um of being either of being afraid <laughs> or of um there's always been kind of romanticization of, of cemeteries you know and sort of the lounging on a on a grave so I think there is a kind of um and certainly in goth culture there in terms of style there's a lot of um fetish aspects to it a lot of you know punk aspects to it a lot of sort of you know the Victorian corset thing aspect to it so there is a kind of sex and there's also um and again this is you know more about goth as a subculture um, there is a kind of gender neutrality to it or a genderlessness to it. There's an androgyny to it where um, men or masculine people um, are kind of free to present as being more feminine and women or more, you know, women-facing people are free um, to be more, to not, not have to smile. You not have to wear pink and be perfect and pretty. You can kind of, you know, you can be a little bit tougher. It can be a little bit cooler or colder without, ha you know, you don't have to be the kind of like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm a happy girl all hmm. the time, you know, whatever. So there's, it kind of allows this blurring of 
gender lines hmm. a lot where, where um, women are often stronger or more heroic or facing fears. Like a lot of haunted house stories are female centric, you know, and men are sort of allowed to be fearful or allowed to be romantic or allowed to be dramatic, you know? Um, so I think there's a kind of blurring of um, sexual sexual tropes that happens a lot in goth. And goth. Um, what about graveyards and cemeteries and in, from the point of view of someone who, you know, is goth or has some type of, you know, goth perspective on things because every time I was in New York and I'd pass a certain cemetery where I have, you know, a few family members buried, I would wonder, like, how do cemeteries operate in our day-to-day -day life? They're almost invisible spaces. It's rude to look at them or it's difficult to, to acknowledge them because how could you? And so they're just there. They're almost like what I think you referred to as blank spaces. I think, yeah, I think that, okay, we're going to talk about that in a minute your piece uh, published in the dispatches from the Institute of Incoherent Geography. I think you talked about empty spaces and cemeteries are these spaces that we don't really engage with. So, I mean, tell me about any, any, you know, anything you would share with me about what you've observed about, you know, the, the whole scariness of a cemetery and death and how we're unable to really work with all that. Like, yeah. Well, I think our, our, Culturally, our attitude towards cemeteries shifts depending on our attitude towards death and how close we are to death. Because cemeteries used to be like parks. You know, before public parks were a common thing, um, people would have picnics. Wow. You know, people would, you know, it was, it was big open green space, you know. Hmm. So wow. it was, you know, you'd have your like, you know, have long walks in the cemeteries to get your fresh air or whatever. Um, but it was also a time, and again, I'm thinking of like, you know, 1800s, you know, early, um, um, sort of before the 1900s, um, where people were much closer to death. People died. You know, people, if a loved one died, they would be the ones to, um, you know, clean the body, you know, dress the body, the viewing would be in their home. So the, the process of dying and death was something that people were much more hands-on with. So hmm. I don't think it was such a scary okay. thing necessarily. Yes. Um, but as the funeral became more of an industry and became more professionalized and became more distant, the, the process of death and of, of burial and all of that became separate from the individual. So suddenly the, the burials and all of that, you know, dealing with the body, uh, burying the body or whatever you're doing is becomes something for the professionals to do hmm. um, as opposed to something that the family does. And the more, more separate I think we are from, from death as, on a personal, personal level, the more mysterious it becomes and the creepier it becomes hmm. as opposed to it being something that's sort of a part of your, because again, in other cultures, um, people will have, you know, you know, 
regular sort of picnics or celebrations in cemeteries with their, you know, visiting their loved ones where it's not as such a scary thing. I think it's a scary thing for a lot of, it's a creepy thing for Westerners because we've been taught that it's a creepy thing. But one of the interesting things here, like I go to Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn a lot. It's, it's, because it's beautiful. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. Hmm. Um, And it's, and it's vast. And um, they actually do a lot of sort of programming there and they'll have concerts and they'll have lectures and they'll have art, you know, projects or art installations going on there. And since COVID, um, more people have discovered it as like, oh, this is a nice, this is basically a park that I can walk around and get some fresh air, you know. Um, so there's been this uptick of visitations to Greenwood and cemeteries um, since the lockdown because people are like, oh, yeah, this is actually a really beautiful place to, to, to walk around, you know. And actually, there's a quote, um, Evan Michelson, who was on a show called Oddities, she had this great quote about cemeteries where she said, um, oh, I hope I get this right. It's the one place where... Um, I can be surrounded by people and alone at the same time. Wow, heavy. <laughs> um, yeah, and I think for me, it feels um, it feels very much like the past is kind of with me a little bit. You know, it feels a little bit like wandering through through history. You know, um, and I do. You know, it, it's and it's. You know, every time, every once in a while, you know, we'll see an interesting looking marker or something or, or, or a weird name or something and kind of, you know, and just wonder like, who was this person, you know, and who was their family and why did they choose that strange particular shape for that tombstone, you know? Um, so I think it can be, you know, a contemplative place, but it also can, you know, it depends on the cemetery, of course, but um, it's also kind of green space and living in New York City, you know, any place for greenery is, is a good place, I guess. Well, um, I've been thinking a lot about de-evolution, de-evolving, going backwards. It seems like this rush to move into the future is just killing us. It's horrible, and it doesn't feel hopeful at all. It feels very stifling. And so a lot of what you're talking about is, is energizing people by kind of going, you know, back in some way. Um, for example, you know, here in, in Mexico, I noticed that dying is something that basically happens at home. Um, mm-hmm. there's not a lot of intervention. It's a family process, and um, everything is handled in a very simple way, except maybe for the very wealthy. Mm-hmm. Um, but for most people here, a, a, a family member who's ill is going to most likely die at home in bed. Yeah. yeah. And um, that just, yeah, that just touches me in many ways because I don't think we understand how to handle death at all. I think we're doing a terrible no. job at it. So. Yeah, I, I I agree, and I think there's a lot. Um, there's they call it the death positive movement, and a lot wow. of it is about is about looking at the industry, like the funeral industry, and how damaging it 
it can be where like you have someone who's at the, their most vulnerable, you know, their loved one has died, they're in mourning, they're maybe confused, they're, you know, the most emotionally vulnerable that they could be. And you have someone saying, <clears throat> excuse me, yeah, but you should spend $20,000 on this casket because that's oh what your loved God. one would have wanted. You know what I mean? Oh um, and there's no reason for it. You know, there's no, and I think, um, one of the things that I think is interesting about um, this, this getting up, sort of getting away from the industrialization of, of, of death and funerals hmm. is that it does give people this opportunity to become closer to their loved one, to experience to kind of experience the fullness of that, I think is very special. And I think instead of hiding away from it, um, uh, like I've, I've never experienced it. I've never had someone, you know, pass away in my presence or I've never had to, you know, fortunately I, I, you know, my, both of my parents are, are still alive, but, um, but that kind of opportunity to, you know, I don't know, to, to sit with your feelings and to respect and pay that kind of homage to your, to your loved ones, I think is something that we lack a little bit, um, you know, in the, in this culture, like the idea that as soon as someone dies and somehow, you know, they're tainted or diseased or you're going to get sick or something from a dead body. Um, Yeah. If that was, yeah. It's a little suspicious. It's like they infantilize us, you know. They they do the same thing when they drop all those bombs overseas and kill people, but never like we don't know about it. We're just kind of having brunch, you know, at at whatever, you know, what are these Applebee's or whatever, and there are all these yeah. bombs dropping and people are dying and the American military is doing it, but we have no, um, you know, there's no trail between that and us. Nothing. No. Yeah. No. Or between yeah. them because it's a robot. It's a drone. Wow. It's not, have, it's not, it's not yeah. even a okay. person in a plane okay. dropping a mm-hmm. bomb. It's like someone pressing a button in a bunker wow. somewhere and yeah. sending a robot to do it. So it's even more distant. Yeah. Um, well, um, okay. So you, okay. In your piece in the dispatches from the Institute of Incoherent Geography, which is a really <laughs> great, I love that title. Oh my God. Yeah. I love it. Okay, so you have a piece called Space is a Place, and I really, yeah. wow, there's so many things that, there's so many directions that takes me in, especially in light of what we're talking about now. Um, so there's a quote I wrote here from your piece, the lot, which, which you're referring to a vacant lot, the mm-hmm. lot is not just space, it is a commodified space, temporarily unaffiliated, suggesting something should be there, but isn't yet. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, I want to talk about that for for a minute. Um, like this, of course, it seems like some kind of critique on gentrification. Um, mm-hmm. How do you feel about the the direction that urban spaces have taken in the last, like, let's say, twenty years? How do you feel about it? You're from Detroit. Yeah. You, you've seen those transitions in Detroit and in New York too. I'm sure you've been in New York for a while. Yeah. Um, so, what do you think? I mean, the interesting thing about the difference between the, when I grew up in Detroit in, um, you know, in the 80s versus 
living like in Brooklyn now is because of, you know, sort of the economic situation in Detroit, the emptiness of the lots, you know, a building would get would burned down or, or, or a place would close or something and the building would just be sort of left to decay on its own. Um, and it would just kind of go back to nature because no one was hmm. buying up those lands because there was no value to it, right? Hmm. So it was a little bit of kind of returning to nature in this way that we don't really see so much um, because especially in New York, you don't have a lot of empty spaces that stay empty very long. They get snapped up by something, you know? So one of the interesting things, and of course it's, you know, it's a negative because it's all about, you know, sort of economic decline and, um, you know, all these sort of socioeconomic reasons why there's sort of the, the empty lot situation in Detroit. But, um, but it's really, really rare to see a city or buildings or homes, these big spaces, just sort of left to return to nature, you know, and there's something kind of um, wild about that. And it's like the, the term ruin porn. People are really into looking at old ruins because there is something sort of fascinating about seeing, um, it's a little bit like getting a little peek into what human being, what the world would be like when humans aren't there. When you see sort of these ruins, it's a little, little bit of like looking into the past and the future at the same time. But the thing with living in Brooklyn or in other cities that go through um, these big movements of gentrification is there is no um, uh, natural healing point. It's a takeover. It's a takeover of spaces. Um, so instead of a neighborhood or a block transitioning sort of naturally the way it would over time, it gets, a, you know, a switch gets flipped. You know, yeah. all of a sudden that bodega, that... Um, was, you know, there forever is now sort of a gourmet coffee shop or something like that. Um, because the population changes so quickly, you know. So um, one of the, and I think one of the things I, the reason why I wrote that particular piece about that particular lot in Bedford-Stuyvesant is because there is so much gentrification going on around it, sort of seeing something that's just sort of left on its own hmm. felt very, felt rare. It felt weird to me that like, for some reason, this one little spot was sort of left to its own devices instead of being snapped up and bought immediately. And that's yeah. what, you know, and that's, and that's kind of what the lot is as opposed to a patch of green in a park or field or something in nature. It's a delineated area where something is meant to go, or something was, where a store was, where a house was, you know. When you take it away, it's like this, you know, naked spot. There's supposed to be something there because that's what it was made for. Well, you have another quote. The abandoned lot is, is a tiny piece of wilderness where it has no business being. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Um do you sense a tension between all these gardens that have appeared in the hood and um, metal and brick and um, 
you know, rubble and the ghetto, the ghetto as we know it, graffiti and those things. I feel this oppositional kind of relationship between those things and all these flowers and fresh fruit and stuff that people are growing, herbs and all this stuff. And then they kind of create these very um, pristine spaces in the middle of the hood. How do you feel about that tension? Do you think that it's not a tension or what do you think? I actually think it's good. I think it's good because if it's the community doing it, if it's the people themselves who are making them, especially because a lot of places where there's issues of food scarcity, where they may not actually have fresh food, fruit and vegetables available like near them, you know, or it's really expensive. Um, so I actually kind of like the idea of a community themselves saying, um, you know, I'm going to plant my own damn vegetables where I can, as opposed to sort of waiting for, you know, a big fancy grocery store to get built down the street, you know? So I actually see it as a kind of um, maybe a little bit active of rebellion. And that was happening a lot in Detroit because no one would get permission because no one really cared. So there are all of these gardens sort of um, starting up um, so people could, you know, grow vegetables and stuff. Um, because there were there was a food scarcity issue where stores were fresh fruit and vegetables or whatever were too too far away. They weren't actually in the neighborhoods where people lived, um, and people were like, you know, fuck you. I'm gonna make my I'm gonna grow my own food. You know. So I actually, I mean, what I don't what I don't what I wouldn't like is if someone or some institution from outside of the community, you know, took it over or took over a space. But I don't really see that that much because it's not like those kind of community gardens make money, you know. The whole idea is that, it, you know, they're for the community, you know. Uh, I, you know, even the word community seems kind of weaponized and loaded to me because I've mm. seen how this all goes down. Like, I've seen it go down everywhere, like in the South Bronx and the Lower East Side. Basically... You have like these young, you know, you know, mostly young white, you know, middle class and wealthy people who have a certain definition of what of what a neighborhood should be. That's often a very suburban kind of interpretation, and they just come in and uh, kill the vibe. You know, they kill the vibe. Uh, they come in. Yeah. Yeah. They just they just come in. They're like, if there's a lot of concrete, you know, you have to like plant flowers, and you know, if oh, you know, it yeah. just it just feels like it just feels like they're defacing like our history with flowers and stuff it's messed oh, up yeah. you know yeah see up. that yeah that i would agree i think that i think stuff like that is bullshit but you know if there, there's but but there's also like if there's you know a grandma who's been living in that you know brownstone you know for 40 years or whatever she can plant her own damn garden it's the it's the you know white folks moving in who are like you should put this here and you should put that there that's not cool but if it's if it, if it's um, and again I'm mostly talking about black and brown folks who are kind of claiming claiming their own space from the city <laughs> um, where uh, they're doing what they want to do in their own space I think that's one thing when it's other people who are like no we're just moved into this neighborhood and we need to make it pretty or make it aesthetically pleasing for white folks. Um, hmm. That's that's different. That's kind of bullshit. Yeah, I mean, I would just like to see urban spaces remain urban spaces, but it seems like 
urban spaces are under attack by people who want them to be kind of pristine, suburban, or even try to, you know, make them into like wild spaces with all these fresh herbs and stuff. I'm not crazy about that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't do much for me at all. And we have so much culture. So much culture came out of what we consider slums that I think there has to be some negotiation with, with before the slum just becomes something that's disposable and that you just build on top of because it was it was never supposed to have been there and stuff like that. It's not. Yeah. It's not. It's just not necessarily the only way to manage that. There's like if we look at culture. And how it's kind of declined, pop culture or street culture has declined. It's because those spaces have, have disappeared. Out of those spaces, out of those conditions, like for example, you have the community garden. I've sat in community gardens, but frankly, I prefer the stoop, right? And the stoop yeah. is like, to me, it's like pure, like a, like a pure urban experience. You just sit on the stoop and you're checking people out. And maybe somebody's got a bottle of beer, a joint, a cigarette, whatever, and you're on the stoop. But I think yeah. there's a blindness. There's a blindness to the fact that we had all these rituals. We had this culture. And, yeah, it was broke. And we needed investment in some way that we should, you know, probably decide, you know, okay, what did we need that we did not have? Of, you know, rats and stuff. Those are all big problems. But if you look at hip-hop, if you look at you know, a lot of, you know, urban gay culture, like voguing and all that stuff, it all came mm. down like it happened on the piers, like it happened on the street, yeah. it happened. Yeah. yeah. And it's like yeah. they removed those spaces. And then you look at culture today and it's just like, come on, it's all like auto tune and like it's whack. Like everything sounds artificial now. Yeah. And I think it's because there's 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 a loss of that do it yourselfness. There's a yeah. loss of that. And we that, lost our um, turf. That we hustle. Don't have any yeah. We lost yeah, our turf. Yeah. Also, yeah, exactly. Like the spaces aren't ours anymore. And yeah, I think it's not only the spaces, but there's also a little bit of, of spirit. Like mm -hmm. I'm going to make, make what I want, how I want it, where I want it, the way I need it to be, as opposed to I'm going to wait for someone to make it so I can buy it, you know? Yeah. Which I think yeah. is. Yeah, I think, I think because it's in especially in New York. I mean, yes, all of these places. New York. I mean, you look at the meatpacking district, and it's so gross right now. I mean, when I first moved there, it was great. You know, I mean, there was like the clubs were there. It was all like the S and M clubs, and it was still kind of gritty, and there was still like meatpacking going on down there, like actual meatpacking. So you kind of felt like. Um, you know, you were kind of, there was a specialness to it and a, a, an excitement to that. And now it's all like, it's all you know, contrived. gourmet restaurants and yeah, but like super rich Disney because it's all like, you know, high fashion shops and like super expensive hotels or whatever. And all of, this is the thing, all of the things that made New York the city. Yeah that people yeah new york the city that they think they're going to that they think they want to experience is just getting bulldozed down to put up you know chase banks and and targets and and stuff you know so it's just well, that like that you know you're making me think about uh haunting <clears throat> as you mm. know as as just kind of going through your stuff it just made me think a lot about haunting and if you lived in New York City and maybe Detroit during the 60s and 70s, there was 
a haunting, a very powerful haunting that, that rose up from the rubble because you just walk past like rubble, like for blocks, yeah. it was rubble. And you would see like burnt, half burnt, you know, strollers, televisions that had, you know, been smashed and left there. And, you were, and all these rats were running between the rubble. And so the ghosts were there with us all the time. Mm. And um, so, you know, I think cities need to be haunted. I really do. Yeah. Uh, we need that. And, and, reading, and reading your stuff just kind of reinforced how I feel about that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think seeing those things and seeing uh, sort of the, the, the layers of history, like the mm. physical, yes, like yes, the material yes. layers in a space. Yes. Um, I, think you, I think you need that. Um, I think you need to have that kind of flattening of time where the past and the present is kind of with you simultaneously. Mm. Um, otherwise, you have no perspective. Which wow. I think one of the biggest thing problems we have in this country is we don't we don't know our history, we don't learn, and we don't learn from our history. You know, Ooh. wow. Um, so I think having those having those scars, you know, it's still present somehow in our in our actual spaces where you can say, wow. oh yeah, I remember that. Wow, um, I can heavy, learn from heavy, that. Heavy. I think you need that. Yeah. <sighs> wow. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would like there to be scars showing. Yeah. Wow. Um, well, anyway, I'm just going to. I get. I'm just going to end this conversation because it could go on forever, <laughs> I was and ever say, right? I know, I'm not right? going to stop. Um, it's so good. I mean, yeah. I mean, okay. So basically, what I'm taking away from this conversation and from and from learning about your work is is, is that dwelling, you know, dwelling on the past is a good thing. It's a good thing. It's yeah. it's not something that we should. You know, stop dwelling. You get that message all the time. I think it's better to dwell, frankly. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I agree. Um, well, look, um, thanks for hanging out with me. This has been pretty incredible, especially since I just woke up. This is like, I me too. <laughs> this is so awesome. Um, this is the most talking I've done yeah. since like no. at nine o'clock in my time. Well, <laughs> I mean, there's talking, talking, right? So, yeah. Um, okay. So look, um, hopefully we can do this again. And just send me the recording. I'm going to upload it to, what is the name of my site? Ah, the name of my podcast. I forgot to just mention that you're listening to Letters Off Paper. And again, I've been talking to Leela Taylor. And um, she's like the coolest person on earth to begin the day talking to. <laughs> Not really. I'm super happy that you joined me. And yeah, that's it. I hope that we can do this again. And, you know, hopefully we can speak again soon. I'd love to. Thank you so much. Thank really, you. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I look forward to to hearing from you with that. Why don't you have like the the recording? So yeah, send it to me. I'll upload. Yeah. Okay. Have a good day, Leela. So I'm stopping recording, and I will send okay. this to you. <laughs> yes, wonderful. As we say in Mexico, un beso. Bye. <laughs> Bye. 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 Bye.